chapter 19, verse 21. Acts chapter 19, verse 21. Still we find ourselves in Ephesus. And hear God's word. When these things were accomplished, Paul purposed in the spirit when he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia to go to Jerusalem, saying, after I've been there, I must also see Rome. So he sent into Macedonia two of those who ministered to him, Timothy and Erastus, but he himself stayed in Asia for a time. And about that time, there arose a great commotion about the way for a certain man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Diana, uh, brought no small profit by uh, or to the craftsmen. He called them together with the workers of similar occupation and said, men, you know that we have our prosperity by this trade. Moreover, you see and hear that not only at Ephesus, but throughout almost all Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away many people, saying that they are not gods which are made with hands. Uh, so not only is this trade of ours in danger of falling into dis- disrepute, but also the temple of the great goddess Diana may be despised and her magnificence destroyed, whom all Asia and the world worship. Now when they heard this, they were full of wrath and cried out, saying, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. So the whole city was filled with confusion and rushed into the uh, theater with one accord, having seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians, Paul's travel companions. And uh, when Paul wanted to go into the people, uh, the disciples would not allow him. Then some of the officials of Asia, who were his friends, sent to him pleading that he would not venture into the theater. Some therefore cried out one thing and some another, for the assembly was confused, and most of them did not know why they had come together. And they drew Alexander out of the multitude, the Jews putting him forward. And Alexander motioned with his hands and wanted to make his defense to the people. But when they found out that he was a Jew, all with one voice cried out for about two hours, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. And when the city clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, men of Ephesus, what man is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple guardian of the great goddess Diana of and of the image which fell down from Zeus? Therefore, since these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rashly. For you have brought these men here who are neither robbers of temples nor blasphemers of your goddess. Therefore, if Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a case against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you have any other to make, it shall be determined in the lawful assembly. For we are in danger of being called into question for today's uproar. There being no reason which we may give to account for this disorderly gathering. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. And let us pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you indeed once more for your word. And we ask you that you might help us, Father, once again, as we consider your work here in Ephesus. And certainly we've benefited all of us from the, the epistle which your apostle Paul wrote to the Ephesians. We also benefited so much from his counsel to the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20. God, we see you at work there and we ask you that it might be instructive to us as we consider once again what happened there. As you speak to us now in the 21st century, facing many similar things. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
one of the things that Luke's, Luke likes to do uh, when he looks at a particular town is he gives us snapshots into what was occurring there. And certainly, uh, I think we can say, based upon what we have in Acts chapter 19, uh, that there were many interesting events that Luke highlights for us there in Ephesus. And so while on the one hand he emphasizes the regular work of the ministry and of church planting and features that we've seen before, uh, so in a sense it, it all sounds the same. Things like uh, he went to the synagogue, the Jews opposed him, but some of the Jews believed he went out to the Gentiles and began with that basis to establish churches and so on. He took up the work of preaching In the midst of that, Luke highlights four major events, giving us a window into Paul's time in Ephesus. The first is uh, the 12 disciples of John that he meets at Ephesus. Uh, The second is time in the school of Tyrannus, though very little is said of that. That really seems to be where the majority of disciple making was occurring. Next, we see, as we saw last time, the scandal of the Jewish exorcists and the general revival that breaks out. And finally, The fourth interesting happening, which we consider this evening, is uh, after detailing his travel plans in verses 21 and 22, we have an account of of the riot that broke out in Ephesus on account of the revival. Now, as I look at the account of this riot in the midst of revival, I find something that uh, is highly instructive and useful to Christians in the 21st century, indeed Christians in every century, what Luke is describing in Ephesus is Christianity seemingly in peril. Christianity is in danger. The, the danger she faces in that town is, uh, is, is grave. And on the other hand, we find the factors Luke outlines that led to her survival. And those are two interesting things to consider side by side. Christianity in peril and yet Christianity surviving. And so let us consider this event with this in mind. When forces conspire, as they were here, to oppose us, and even seemingly to wipe us out, because our opponents would really drag us into a crowded theater and and stone us to death if they could. They would get rid of us all if they could. When that begins to happen, when the public sentiment is so strongly against Christianity, the question is, what is it that supports us? And what is it that leads to our survival nonetheless? Because you see, this not only happened here, but this has happened many times in many places in the history of the church. And yet the church goes on. And then beyond that, the question of how we must view ourselves and our duty at such times. And so let me say, first of all, I spoke of the general revival that broke out there. And note in the first place, and I think I might have said something like this in the prior sermon. Let me say it again, that true religion is bad for the business of sin, quite literally. Now, that's one of the ways we could speak about true religion. It's bad for the business of sin metaphorically. But sometimes we see it's actually bad for business. And that's one of the reasons the world doesn't like us, because we disrupt their way of life and sometimes we disrupt their trade, their business. Let me ask you this. We're looking at what Christianity does to the world. It disrupts the business of sin. But I would just ask you, is it has it been bad for the business of your own sin in your own life? Have you found that is the effect of the gospel and Christianity and the grace of God that 
Well, sins that used to, we could say, be profitable to you, suddenly you realize there's no profit to be had. Christianity, you see, metaphorically, in that sense, ought to be bad for the business of sin always, certainly for those who call themselves Christians. I remember when I was converted, a friend of mine telling me, I used to like you before you were a Christian. You used to be fun. Now, really what he was saying is he resented what Christianity did to me. Christianity cost him a friend and it cost him his fun. Well, that's what I'm saying. Christianity does this. It's disruptive. It upsets people for this reason. The trouble with Christianity, you see, is that it really does change people. It works. It's unlike the superstition of the exorcists and the magicians in that regard. They make a claim of power. But here's something that actually works. And again, the way that it works and the way that its power is made known is when sinners are made to give up their sins. That's the amazing power and the amazing testimony of Christianity. And beyond that, when sinners are made to embrace Jesus Christ and to come into the church and to take up this new way of life. I hope to say more about that later in the sermon. How bitter those who make a trade of sin then become when they, they are put out of business in this way. Matthew Henry says, many set themselves against the gospel of Christ because it calls men away from all unlawful crafts, however much wealth is to be gotten by them. Well, as I say this, that religion is bad for sin or the business of sin, let me make uh, certain observations. The first being that it's obvious here that Christianity was spreading. I say that Christianity was in peril, but that was in the midst of its vast increase. And was this not something that Jesus had promised? You see, the gospel begins in Jerusalem, but do you see how far it had already gotten and how much progress was being made now in Ephesus? So many were being converted that, again, those who made a business of sin were being put out of business. But did not Jesus promise that this would happen, that the leaven of Christianity would indeed spread? And so it was, and so it still is. The question we have then is, how does it happen and that's what Acts is all about. How does the leaven of Christianity spread into this world? And frankly, what we see over and again is that it does so in the most ordinary way. Obviously, it does so by the regular preaching and teaching ministry of the Apostle Paul and others. In other words, we see here in Ephesus, and really this is an account of what happened at the end of his two-year ministry, it didn't happen all at once by one sermon. I grant, uh, at times, if you read the history of the church, that the church has been set ablaze and revival is broken out by a single sermon. Yes, that does happen. Certainly that happened at Pentecost. But more ordinarily, this is the kind of thing that happens over the course of years. It doesn't happen all at once. But here it happens. The trouble really breaks out at the end of two years of ministry, regular ministry. And so it occurs by the regular preaching and teaching ministry, also by the conversion of people, especially notable conversions like the Apostle Paul. Another way we could make this point is to, to speak of the sovereign work of the Spirit. How is it spreading? Well, it's spreading by his sovereign work. It is the Spirit who is bringing people to a conviction of sin and to a faith in Jesus Christ. It's his work, not man's. That's what Paul, or Luke wants us to see. 
lest anyone think, and I don't know how anyone would think this, given what Paul says about himself and what others were saying about him. Paul, you were a terrible preacher, people said. Well, lest anyone still thought in light of that, that it was by the skillful preaching of Paul or others. Luke is telling us again and again, do you see how many people opposed him? How many people rejected his message, how they wanted to kill him? It wasn't that he was a skillful orator. It was that the spirit was at work in this regular way through his preaching and through converting other sinners. He was bringing others to Christ. Another thing is simply by the establishment of churches. And thus uh, we have that emphasis constantly. They were planting churches. They planted a church here in Ephesus. We also have along those lines the emphasis of baptism, because that's how people were coming into the church. They believed and they were baptized. And so they were enrolled in the church and they were uh, they were they came to sit under its regular teaching and preaching ministry. Not only were they converted, now they were growing as Christians. And you see, as a result of that, how uh, the witness uh, of Christianity and the leaven of Christianity was spreading, not just through conversions, but through Christians who were growing. And so we could speak next of the witness of these believers as believers, that is Christians living as Christians. And what, what, what a mighty thing that is in a town and in any place when people are truly saved and they begin to live as Christian people, not just in the church you see, but in regular lives. It became obvious to others in Ephesus now that there was something different about these people. They were living in a different way, Luke says. They no longer were given to old superstitions. They were no longer buying the book, uh, the books of the exorcist, but they were giving themselves now to this simple form of discipleship to Jesus. They were followers of Jesus. They were followers of the way. That's what Luke calls it. Why does he call it that? Why were others calling that? Because it was a way of life that they were giving themselves to. It was a pattern of behavior. Now, when I say that, I don't mean that they were in some artificial way going out of their way all to look exactly the same. And I only feel the need to say that because, you know, I was just reading this week at times in the church. Christians have gone too far in that extreme. They even begin to speak in the same uh, precise way. They do everything they can to look exactly the same. That's not the point. The point is that, again, these people were obviously followers and disciples of Jesus. It was obvious in what they weren't doing. They gave up their former life. They turned from idols to the living God. And now they were living lives uh, as living sacrifices unto him. And as they did that, the amazing thing that you notice, you see, it wasn't artificial. It was completely natural. Their lives began to resemble one another. There was this family resemblance among Christians and together as a result of that there was this mighty witness in Ephesus they didn't you see say well I've taken Jesus by faith now I go on to live as I did before that's not what they were doing but in taking Jesus by faith it changed them completely it transformed them and and still they were being transformed uh, even as we saw uh, this morning transformed and conformed to a new pattern and thus, the witness of the, the early church was powerful in the simple and remarkable, uh, simple yet remarkable way. The leaven of Christianity was spreading. The leaven of the gospel was spreading. 
And what we see is that it was quite disruptive in Ephesus as it had been elsewhere. And so there were many consequences to this. The consequences were that as people were converted and many were converted there, thus we speak of it as a revival in Ephesus. Many were brought into the church and were beginning in the power of the spirit to live according to the way, this new way of life, turning from idols to the living God. What happened as a result is that the life of this town was disrupted. It was unsettled. And people uh, even had to change uh, their business. And that's the true power of Christianity. Do you see here how, as it was said earlier of Christianity, it turns the world upside down? Although perhaps it would be better to say, and I'm not alone in saying this, I didn't make this up. It really turns the world right side up. The world that had become upside down as a result of sin. And didn't Jesus predict this? Didn't Jesus tell us that as the kingdom of God began to break into the lives of men, that it would be a disruptive force? That it would break itself into homes and into churches and into towns and into nations? And that it would unsettle the lives of men? There's no way to avoid this, Jesus says. Though in vain many have sought to do so. What can compete, I ask you? What can compete in your own life? Now that Jesus has come to take the central place. Do you see how disruptive this becomes? The world says, uh, give allegiance to us. Perhaps your family says that. And yet you say, I can't do that anymore. I now must give all that I have and all that I am unto Jesus. And that becomes a very disruptive thing, especially not only as you begin to do that, but you call others to do the same. And so the leaven is spreading. The light is shining. So let me try to make the point in a different way. I've been speaking of the leaven that spreads. But what about this? Jesus calls in uh, the Sermon on the Mount. He's speaking to his disciples. He says, you're salt and light. And were they surprised? These very men, were they surprised when they discovered this was really so? That as Christians, they were functioning in the world as salt and light. Salt, which preserves the world from the rot of moral decay. Well, here you have a bunch of salt in Ephesus. And what begins to happen? The rot of idolatry goes out of business. Or what about light? When your light is set on a hill to be shining, not to be put under a basket, Jesus says, what's the purpose of light? It's to dispel the darkness. Suddenly we realize that as Christians, we are uh, affecting not only ourselves, but others. Others are benefiting from our witness, from our light. You see, Jesus says you don't live your Christianity in a corner. You don't put the light under a basket. In other words, you don't hide the fact that you're a Christian. Don't go around parading it as the Pharisees do. No, no, don't hear me saying that, Jesus says, in Matthew chapter 6. But at the same time, Matthew chapter 5. Why was this light set on a hill after all? Well, it was set on a hill in order to shine, was it not? And the amazing thing about the gospel at work in the lives of Christians in the church is that as the light is shining, the darkness begins to retreat. You see, that's what light does. And that's what Christians have done always, wherever they are. When Christians begin to gather, it is not only for their own benefit. Entire towns, entire nations have benefited and the entire way of life of people have been disrupted. It is amazing to see when the light begins to shine how much the darkness retreats. And that's what we see here. 
We also see how much the darkness resents uh, being dispelled by the lightness, by the light. And yet at the same time, and I want to try to balance this point as well as I can, though I wonder if I can do so effectively. Let me try. At the same time, let me say that Christianity was not established to overturn the established order. In other words, and try to follow what I'm saying. It is not the stated purpose of Christianity to overturn governments. It is not the stated purpose of Christianity to upset societies. In other words, what we find in the New Testament, uh, again and again, whether in Acts or First uh, Peter, for instance, or in many other places, we find uh, the emphasis that, uh, uh, that Christian living is to be quiet and peaceable among the Gentiles, not disruptive. Christians are to submit to the powers that be, that Christians are not to seek in outlandish ways to become disruptive agitators of society, to become revolutionaries. But Christians are called to become positive contributors to society, which is why, I, I, let me say again, Christians always make the best citizens, always. You see, it's our opponents that try to paint us out to be bad citizens. The reality is we're the best citizens. And the wise magistrate quickly realizes this about us. Not only are we to be peaceable, but we are to be hardworking, diligent, honest. And so a man who becomes a Christian doesn't suddenly become a radical or a revolutionary. No, in a sense, the reality is, and we see this in Peter, it tames his spirit. He was ready to, to bear the sword for Christ. And, well, more and more he became a meek and a gentle sort of man like Christ. Now, that doesn't mean, and again, you see how difficult this point is to make. I'm seeking to achieve balance. That doesn't mean, and this is too often the case today among Christians, it doesn't mean that we go along to get along. Or that the Christian witnesses evil and says nothing. It doesn't mean that. No, you don't know the first thing about Christ if you think that. Christ was meek, yet he overturned tables. Now, I can't take credit for that. My, my friend in the ministry told me that. I think that's a good way of balancing the point. But here's the true power of the witness of the Christian. And, and, and what we see that, that is in his meek and gentle spirit. And as we see here, the Christian who's living like this in the way that Christ commands him, when he becomes a man like Christ himself, his witness really does become quite revolutionary in the end, doesn't it? The light is shining through him and through his witness. And this is how the leaven of Christianity spreads into the world, changing things, disrupting relationships. It wasn't really the Christian man who did this or who even who sought to do it, but it was the power of Christianity and the power of the kingdom of God at work in him and in others. And I understand that the distinction I am making here is subtle, but it's also important that the teaching of the New Testament, and this is one of the great, if you read any of the commentators, you'll read them making this point over and over again. This is one of the great uh, apologetic purposes of a passage like this. It's one of the great apologetic purposes of the New Testament and of Acts, that what our opponents have to say about us is untrue. They, are, they, are paint, they were doing this in the first century, and they're doing it in the 21st century. They are painting Christians in the worst possible light. And, and what, what Peter says, uh, for, especially in 1 Peter, is be sure that you're living in such a way that it's clear that what they're saying about you is untrue. 
let them see that you are a true Christian. And yet, at the same time, we must concede there's a measure of truth to what they're saying. For instance, what uh, Demetrius says, this Paul has persuaded and turned away many people saying that they are not gods which are made with hands. Well, we'd have to agree with that. We'd have to agree that, that not only we believe that, but that we would call others to believe that. But let me say in the next place something about the tactics of our opponents, their methods. Luke seems equally concerned to stress this throughout Acts. He's constantly at pains to show that the real troublemakers, those who are really dishonest and a threat to, to good order and society, were the opponents of Christianity. Not Christians, but their opponents. Look here, he's, he says. The first thing we see is that there's a clash of religious zeal. They, these men weren't just contending for their pockets. He goes on to say, not only is this trade of ours in danger of falling to disrepute, but also the temple of the great goddess Diana. Well, I don't think that we could disagree with that statement. It is the stated goal of Christianity to overturn false religion and to establish true religion, to call men to the worship of the true God and away from false gods. And yet what we have to recognize about our opponents is that in a sense, they're contending for the same thing, though they're wrong. And so there's always an element of religious fervor in their opposition. And we often underestimate our opponents because we think it's not so. They feel as though Christianity is a threat to their religion, and they're right. But there's also commonly an element of exaggeration and deception to try to paint things as badly as they can. I'm speaking of our opponents in our own day and in Paul's day and in every day to paint uh, an unfavorable view of Christians and Christianity to make uh, the common sentiment be, if they can, that Christianity is bad for society and Christians are bad for society. And, you know, really the best thing that could happen from the standpoint of peace and good order is that there wouldn't be a single Christian in the world and not a single uh, Christian preacher. And so they seek to turn popular opinion against Christianity. We see much of that today. We see that the dominant culture is opposed to Christianity. And that is what they aim at. That's what they were aiming at here, to, to stir up the crowds against Christianity. Luke, I, I don't know if you caught it, but Luke is almost humorous in his depiction. They were chanting. They didn't even know what they were saying, but they were just going along. And it's often like that, you know, people say Christians are bad. They don't even know what they're saying. They're just going along with the general sentiment. Well, let us see. That's the kind of thing that's been going on since the first century. Perhaps, perhaps I might succeed in outlawing it as an accepted religion. So there wouldn't be a single Christian left. Isn't it interesting to see in every age how threatened men always feel by Christianity? And, of course, we see here what we've seen in our own day, the use of riots. But this is really where they undo themselves and go too far because it becomes clear who the real disruptors and poor citizens are. And so in the last place, I would speak of why they never prevail, why they always fail, why we need not fear them, the opponents of Christianity. The first is, and, and again, Luke uh, often paints... This kind of picture, not because he wanted to, but because it was so. The Christian often has friends in high places. I've said that before. I say it again. 
Verse 31, some of the officials, Paul wanted to go to the crowd, but some of the officials who were his friends sent to him pleading that he would not venture into the theater. Paul uh, had actually, uh, the word for official is Asiarch, and, and really these were prominent men in Ephesus. The trouble with our enemies is they always think everyone is like they are. They always assume everyone will have similar feelings about Christianity. They never realize just how much Christians endear themselves to others wherever they are. You think of Joseph in prison. I've just read that. Joseph in prison was making friends in high places. You can put a Christian anywhere. The amazing thing you'll find, yes, he'll have many enemies, but he'll also have many friends because of the power of Christianity to endear a man to others. Another thing we see is that cooler heads often prevail just when things seem hopeless. Now, that's something the church needs to hear in every day. We, we have a tendency, and I have a tendency, uh, to, to, uh, to exaggerate uh, how bad things are. And even when things seem to be going badly and everything seems to be against us, we, we forget that cooler heads often prevail in God's providence. Even though God tells us to expect this. Did we suddenly forget when things were going badly? When the dominant culture was against us, did we suddenly forget God's common grace? And do we see here that just when the madness of men reaches its fever pitch, God often suppresses the evil of men from running its full course? In fact, he always does that. He never once allowed the evil of man to run its full course. You could even point to before the flood. You could say, there it went its full course. Well, no, it didn't. Because God flooded the world. There hasn't been a single time that God has allowed the evil of men to prevail. He may allow it to go to a point. But in his providence and under his government, he will always put a stop to it. And that's what he does here. He always puts a stop to the evil of men. He has many ways of doing it. He might do it through just... The voice of a one reasonable man, one reasonable magistrate, or he might flood the world. One way or another, he will do it. So here, he uses the civil magistrate. Well, let me say something about that. That is a common tactic of our Lord. That is one of the reasons that he established the civil magistrate. That's one of the reasons that the Christian is called to submit to the magistrate as a minister of God, because God often uses the civil magistrate. And indeed, he established a civil magistrate for this very purpose. This, what we see here through the city clerk who stands up and says, we better calm down or we're going to get ourselves in trouble. And so the riot ended there and then. That is the proper use of the magistrate, is it not? And let us thank God for it. Here is his common grace at work in the history of the world and for the benefit of his church. Another thing we see And I think this is always true, is that our opponents always go too far. You see, evil is never a good policy. Have you ever read Lord of the Rings? Isn't that something Gandalf keeps telling his companions? However strong evil may seem, it always always succeeds in defeating itself in the end. It's never a good policy. It's always self Defeating. And that's what we see here. You know, Christians need to be reminded of that. We're so terrified of the evil forces in the world. And we, we easily forget how ultimately self-defeating their, their position is. Here were people who set out to make a case 
that Christians were the troublemakers. And in the end, they only proved their own troublemaking and their own wickedness. And so it is that evil does not succeed in defeating the good, but itself every time, every time. Maybe not at all at once or, or at once, but eventually it will every single time. And so there's need for patience. But finally, we must appreciate the true conflict. Why does evil never prevail? Why does it always fail? Because let us see, as Demetrius himself seemed to, though at times I wonder if we forget what the true conflict really is. It is a conflict of deities. Now let me put that in quotations because uh, the other side doesn't really deserve uh, the ascription deity. But nevertheless, it is a religious conflict. And so let me ask you this about the opponents of Christianity who worship gods which are made with hand, as Paul says. They are not gods which are made with hands. That's who they worship. Let me ask you this about them, realizing that's whom they worship and that's who they are. Do idols which men make with their own hands, do pretended deities frighten you, O Christian? Are you afraid of them? then why are you afraid of those who serve them? Why are you afraid of those who make them? Do you believe what Paul said? I'll read it again. This Paul is persuaded and turned away many people saying that they are not gods which are made with hands. All right. Do we really believe that? Do you not understand, Christian brothers and sisters, that we are the ones who stand in the superior position? Because the God whom we serve is the true God and he's alive and he reigns in heaven. And that's the very claim that he's not only made on us, but that we're making on others. Those who serve gods of wood and stone are as impotent, they're as powerless as the gods they serve. Don't you see that? Don't you see there's nothing for the Christian to fear? They are serving gods who do not exist. And if that is true, what is there in their religion to frighten us? Oh, they bark loudly. They make a great show of things, but we, like Elijah, would do well to laugh at their taunts. To share something of Paul's and Elijah's confidence. I'm not saying that they can't do us bodily harm. They can. I'm only saying that's all they can do. They can do nothing more. But Jesus Christ, and I close with this, Jesus Christ tells us in the Gospels whom to fear. Don't fear him who can kill the body, and that's all he can do. Fear him who can kill the body and Throw the soul into hell. That's the true and the living God. It's him you ought to fear. It's him you ought to serve. And Jesus Christ came into the world to gather those who serve and who worship him into his church. And worshiping him, we are declaring Sunday by Sunday our belief, our firm conviction. Indeed, we're experiencing that very power in our lives And what we believe is that Jesus Christ not only made the world, but he rules the world. And by his power, he supports all things and he brings all things to pass. Oh, he says to his church, don't fear the world. Fear God and fearing him, trust him, serve him and love him. And if you believe that, well, then I say you will do well. Amen. And let us return praise to God by standing together and singing hymn 210, hymn 210.